Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 551 for the 16th of July, 2017. Do you have an in-car GPS system that you need to buy annual updates for? If so, that system is obsolete. The Federal Communications Commission is working to eliminate net neutrality. Let's consider some opinions from conservatives and liberals who say that this is a technology issue, not a political issue. In short circuits, is it time to upgrade to a solid-state disk drive? If you're concerned about cost or reliability, your concerns are outdated. Nuclear power plants are the latest targets of malware creators. This is not a comforting thought. In spare parts, only on the website, Wi-Fi will be present on more than half of all commercial airliners within five years. 4D printing is the future, even if you have no idea how something could be printed in four dimensions. Now, this may sound like a repeat, and perhaps it is, but we are facing the final showdown on net neutrality, and it is time to speak up. Your car may have a built-in GPS unit, but you probably don't need it if you have a smartphone. The GPS unit in my car is significantly out of date because I haven't bought an update disk for several years. There are a few reasons I'd want to. Although the built-in unit does one thing a smartphone unit can't, that one feature isn't worth $100 to $200 per year for a new disc. What is that feature, you're wondering? Well, if the radio is on, the built-in unit lowers the radio volume when it has something to say. A smartphone GPS can't do that, of course. Google Maps and Waze are probably the best-known GPS apps, but there are others. Waze, by the way, is now owned by Google. I'm going to stick with Android apps because they're the ones I can use. I don't have an iPhone. Waze was the leader in terms of providing information about current road conditions, but Google Maps has borrowed some of the features from Waze, and that's one that it's borrowed. The directional instructions from Google Maps seems better to me, but Waze offers some novelty voices. Would you like to have Mr. T guide you? Remember, television's the A-team, that Mr. T. Waze will let you do that, and it also offers several other narrators. Google announces distances in feet, while Waze likes to use miles. The built-in GPS in my car may be the winner here, though. Instead of specifying an exact distance, it simply announces, Next right turn as I approach the intersection. Waze's awareness of traffic is helpful, where I live, there's a construction project that's been underway for a couple of years to improve congestion that results from an interstate highway, a very busy multi-lane interstate-like state route, and a busy surface street. This knot of an intersection is just a couple of miles away from an interchange that has two interstates. For those who live in central Ohio, I can just say Worthington, I-270, Ohio 315, and US 23, and people will go screaming from the room. The construction is approaching an end, and I thought I'd see how Waze handled the area that's still under construction. I had planned to stay on 315 to 270, then maneuver to High Street and exit, 
but Waze started showing significant congestion ahead and abruptly told me to exit about a mile and a half before the outer belt. The rerouting took me beside and then over Route 315, where traffic was stopped because of a wreck. Thanks to Waze, I got to my destination a minute or two late, instead of having to sit in traffic for 20 to 30 minutes. That's technology that Google is trying to add to Maps, but it's something that my built-in GPS unit wouldn't have warned me about. Screens on most of the built-in GPS units are far larger than what you'll find on a phone, but animation on the phone-based GPS apps zoom in and out as needed to provide a good picture. If you need a really huge screen, you could buy a tablet that's able to use your cellular provider's data plan or one with only Wi-Fi and then rig your smartphone to be a Wi-Fi hotspot. So there's a way if you need a big screen. You'll also need some way to mount the phone. I tried a unit that has a sticky suction cup. It kept detaching from the dash. I thought that was because the surface has a slight texture. So then I tried attaching it to the windshield, but it fell off even when it wasn't holding the phone. So then I bought a holder that clips onto the HVAC louvers. Much better. On a long trip, your phone's battery won't last long. To solve that problem, you can just buy a USB power adapter and a cable. Most cars have what once would have been called a cigarette lighter connection. Now it's called a power port. Use that. I'm still trying to decide whether I prefer Google Maps or Waze. Both of them are highly competent applications, but they're not the only choices. You might also want to take a look at Here Maps, also called Here We Go, Map Fact Navigator, and MapQuest. All the apps are free, but some offer in-app purchasing, and some people are annoyed by Waze's propensity to tell you when you're near a store or a restaurant and then offer to take you there. So just remember that any app that's free wants something from you in return. These things aren't always just for highways, either. Back in May, my older daughter was in Ohio State University Medical Center. She spent several days in intensive care, then a day and a half in the surgical intensive care unit, another day on a floor for transplant patients, and then she was moved to a newly remodeled floor when it opened. University Hospital is a huge place. It consists of many buildings that are connected to each other, and it's easy to get lost. The GPS unit in your car would be useless inside a hospital, but Google Maps knows about the interiors of some buildings, large shopping centers, airport terminals, hospitals, things like that. In some cases, the interior maps are specific to a given floor. In my case, I had a map of the fourth floor of Doan Hall, although there are always people who are willing to help somebody who's lost find the location they're looking for, having a map in your pocket is handy, too. And unlike your car-bound built-in unit, GPS applications and smartphones include navigation information for those who aren't driving. Walking, cycling, using public transit are all included in many of the apps, these features can be handy if you need to get from one place to another when you're walking or visiting another city. Some of the free apps have paid versions that will make their ads disappear. Waze probably is the most unusual GPS application. It depends on community input, which makes it ideal for those who have a passenger who can operate the phone and report problems. The driver, of course, should never try to report a wreck or a traffic slowdown while driving. As obvious as that is, you know, and so do I, that some people will create their own traffic hazard or wreck by trying to use an app like this to report a traffic hazard or wreck. Trying some of these apps really makes a lot of sense because they can help you get from point A to point B. 
and some of them provide some highly useful navigational data that you won't find in a built-in GPS. Net neutrality is a topic I've touched on before. It's perceived by some as being a political issue. But as a technology guy, I just can't see any justification for making it political. It's a high-stakes money issue, and it appears to me that the heads of some big Internet service providers see a way to get big financial payoffs by dividing Internet users along political lines. Consumer Reports this month asks a simple question. Do you think it's okay for your internet service provider, a company such as Comcast or Verizon that connects you to the internet, to decide what websites you can visit or determine which streaming services will look best on your smart TV? The magazine followed up with this. If the answer is no, you're probably in favor of net neutrality. It really is just this simple. You have agreed to pay an Internet service provider to deliver any content you want, reliably and without delay. You pay the Internet service provider a fee each month to do that. You then visit free sites such as YouTube or Vimeo, or paid sites such as Netflix, to view the content you want. The sites such as YouTube, Vimeo, Netflix, and hundreds more, fulfill their part of the bargain by sending the content to you. And the Internet service provider fulfills its part of the bargain by delivering the content you have paid them to deliver. At least it works that way so long as the Federal Communications Net Neutrality Rules, which define the Internet as a utility, remain in place. The new head of the FCC, Ajit Pai, wants to change that. In 2001, Pai became an Associate General Counsel at Verizon Communications. While there, he handled competition matters, regulatory issues, and counseling of business units on broadband initiatives. Barack Obama appointed Pi to the FCC in 2011. According to Wikipedia, Pi voted against the FCC's 2015 Open Internet Order, which served as the basis for net neutrality regulations. He said in December 2016 that he believed net neutrality's days were numbered. In May, the FCC took the first formal step toward dismantling net neutrality. Wired magazine this week carried an article by Susan Crawford that describes the work by Pi's predecessor, Tom Wheeler, as commendable. You'll find a link to that article on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It then goes on to discuss what Crawford calls an insidious policy that's in the works to result in far greater woes for consumers. I recommend reading that article. Crawford is a columnist for Back Channel and a professor at Harvard Law School. The final day for initial comment on the current proposal is July 17th. Then the FCC's website will be open for replies until August 16th. One of the easiest ways to register a comment is via the Consumers Union website. You'll find a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And you'll also see this week on the TechBiter Worldwide website a copy of a message I sent to the FCC. Again, this is not a political issue. If you're a Democrat, you should oppose what the FCC is trying to do. If you're a Republican, you should oppose what the FCC is trying to do. If you're a Libertarian, you should oppose what the FCC is trying to do. You get the idea here. If you believe that you should get what you pay for, 
you should oppose what the FCC is trying to do. Occasionally, I create a video and upload it to Vimeo to illustrate something that can be more accurately described that way. If the FCC's destruction of net neutrality succeeds, these videos might be unavailable, or the playback might be unacceptable because I won't be able to pay Verizon, Comcast, and the others to include my content in their fast lane. There are three videos on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. One is a video from Vimeo that describes what's at stake. Vimeo, of course, is an active participant in this story because it serves videos that have been created by others. You'll also find a video by the Wall Street Journal, a conservative publication. The Wall Street Journal's video, actually created a couple of years ago, explains net neutrality in 2 minutes and 46 seconds of clear, non-political terms. And the final video is from Fight for the Future. That's a liberal-leaning technology group. The video is only 34 seconds, but it illustrates more than explains what's at stake. In short circuits, maybe it's time to upgrade to a solid-state disk drive. Solid-state drives have been around for a while, and despite their significant advantages, some people are still wary of them. Too wary. Early on, there were some downsides, but those have largely been reduced to the point that SSDs are a good choice for a lot of people. Initially, SSDs were extremely expensive. That's normal with new technologies, but the cost difference is now far less than it was then, and for the usual reasons, maturing technology and economies of scale. A one terabyte SSD will cost you know, $250 to $300 today. Now, that compares to oh, $50 or so for a one terabyte standard hard drive. So there is still a cost difference. You may still want a standard drive for storing large amounts of data, but the computer will boot quite a bit faster, programs will load considerably faster, if the boot disk is a solid-state unit. Some large installations are switching to all solid-state drives, despite their higher apparent cost, because they cost less to operate. Because they're faster, SSDs deliver data faster and without the need for expensive additional hardware. They also consume less power because there's no motor inside to spin a platter, and they run cooler so a large data center's need for cooling can drop. They're physically smaller too, so more drives fit in the same amount of space. Those aren't concerns for home or office users who have just a couple of computers. If you've been avoiding an SSD upgrade because you're concerned about longevity of solid-state drives, you're depending on data that's a decade or so out of date. The life of disk drives with rotating platters is measured in the amount of time the drive is in service. The life of an SSD is measured in the number of times data is written to the disk. SSD manufacturers know that some bits will fail over time, so the amount of memory a drive starts with is typically more than is advertised. Standard drives also lose space over time as areas of the platter become unreliable and are locked out by firmware on the disk. Because SSD life is measured in writes, it's easy to assume that this is a small number. It's not. Let's say a given disk drive is rated at 10 writes per day. Now, wow, that seems like an awfully small number, doesn't it? But wait, it applies to the entire drive. If you have a 1 terabyte drive, you would need to write 10 terabytes of data every day to consume all 10 writes. 
So the drive would be expected to accommodate 10 writes per day to every byte for five years. That's the usual metric for these drives. So that's 10 terabytes a day for more than 1,800 days. 18,000 terabytes of data written. Reads are free. It's only the writes that have longevity implications. In other words, concern about SSD longevity is somewhat misplaced. If you have a desktop computer or a notebook that holds more than a single drive, converting the boot disk to an SSD unit can create some real improvements. equation to consider. Nuclear power plants plus malware equals what? Well, it's not a very good thought, is it? Let's start with this. The systems that operate nuclear power plants are air-gapped, meaning that they are not connected to any network that's connected to the public internet. That makes them considerably safer than they would be otherwise, but it doesn't really mean they're secure. In fact, a British report says they're vulnerable because they are insecure by design. A friend of mine used to say a collision at sea can ruin your whole day. Malware in a nuclear power plant could do a lot worse than that. The report by Chatham House found that although control systems were supposed to be air-gapped, not all really were because operators frequently used USB thumb drives to move information from systems that had Internet access to supposedly secure systems. And that's bad. And now, Ars Technica reports that the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI have issued a joint report providing details of malware attacks targeting employees of companies that operate nuclear power plants. The attacks have been taking place since May. They have focused on employees' personal computers and so far have not managed to intrude on control systems. But still, if you're looking for something to stay up late worrying about, uh, you've got it now. Earlier this year, the Department of Homeland Security warned about cyber attacks on the energy sector, healthcare, information technology, telecommunications, and infrastructure industries. Now is probably a pretty good time to develop a well-reasoned bit of paranoia. But please, no paranoia about spare parts, even though it's only on the website. This week, Wi-Fi will be present on more than half of all commercial airliners within five years. 4D printing is the future, even if you have no idea how something could be printed in four dimensions. And this may sound like a repeat from the program, and maybe it is, but we are facing the final showdown on net neutrality. It is time to speak up. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website www.techbiter.com and if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.